Last Sunday, our church body received tragic news of the sudden and unexpected death of a longtime member and former worship leader of our church. Sad news as he left behind four young children and a wife. It's tragic, we say. It is tragedy. I thought it would be important and helpful as I shepherd you through understanding and navigating tragedy, not just the tragedy of the loss of our beloved Johnny, but the tragedies that you may face and will undoubtedly face throughout your life. This tragedy hurts. There's a sting in tragedy, a sting that involves pain, confusion, anger, frustration, and often unanswered questions. If you've ever been stung by a bee, you have felt the burning, the pain, and perhaps the fear. Like any tragedy, like any sting, different people react differently. And when that bee stings you and leaves that stinger in your skin in the midst of that difficulty, you may freak out. You may scream, you may rub, you may scratch. And if you don't take the proper steps, you can at best alleviate some of the pain momentarily or at worst make that sting much, much worse. But if you calm down, if you think rightly, if you patiently endure the pain so you can take time to remove the stinger and treat the sting properly, you will get through it successfully. And when it comes to the sting of human tragedy, the same holds true. Freak out. React poorly. Just try to remove the pain as quickly as possible, and you can at best alleviate some of the pain momentarily or at worst, make the sting much, much worse. And perhaps even cause another tragedy. But patiently, biblically, and rightly deal with that tragedy, you will not only survive, but you will come out stronger, more spiritually mature, and all the while glorifying God. But what are the right steps? I'd like to share those with you this morning. I want to give you this morning five realities to consider when tragedy strikes. And for most of us, on the forefront of our minds is a tragedy we just heard of that we are currently mourning and grieving over. But I want you to take these truths and understand that they are universal for the Christian. They don't just belong to today. They belong to every day of your Christian life, whether you are directly involved in the tragedy, whether it is tragedy that you have heard of that is affecting you. Five realities to consider when tragedy strikes. Reality number one. Find comfort in the Lord. Find comfort in the Lord. 
We'll be turning a lot today. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, that's okay. You can just listen. I know that's unique for us as we usually turn a page every few months as we, pray, <laughs> as we go verse by verse through James. But turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. This is one of my favorite passages. It is something that we have, my wife and I and our family have been able to experience and been blessed by and bless others by. There's a longer passage I encourage you to read at some other point, but First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians rather, chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and listen to this, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Comfort. In the midst of tragedy, that's what we want. We want to be comforted. We don't always know that. We say we want to go back in time. We want the pain to be removed. We want this person back. We want that person healed. We want the leg fixed, whatever it is. But what we want is comfort. And the key word in this whole section is the word comfort. It's a word that speaks of calling, literally calling someone to your, to your side to aid you, to help you. For the believer, that's help with encouragement. That's help with exhortation primarily. And God here is called the God of all comfort. All implies that He is the God of every kind of comfort, and He is the God of immeasurable comfort. We seek comfort from others, but we need to first and foremost seek comfort from God. My prayer for Johnny's family, my prayer that I have prayed for some of you in difficult times, is that, Lord, would you comfort them in the way that only you can? And that is so important to understand. There's a comfort that comes from God that cannot come from anywhere else. And we understand that in the end, comfort is solace or happiness that comes from favorable circumstances. We have to understand that in the midst of tragedy, the tragedy will often not disappear. It is embedded in the timeline and history of your life, and there it goes, down through the ages. Nothing can change the past. But the favorable circumstances, the removal of unpleasant circumstances, has a lot to do with your spiritual well-being, your perspective on life, your moving on. And we understand this when times are tough. Joy comes when encouragement, comfort, some sort of rest from the unpleasant circumstances is provided. And God comforts in ways that no human, no substance, no earthly provision can. So look to Him. Look to God. He may work through others. That's going to be a key point this morning for us. Let me rephrase that. He will work through others, other believers. But we look ultimately and firstly to Him. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 through 17, we see this same concept of comfort from God, but as it is connected to so much more and helps us understand what that comfort entails and how to express or receive that comfort. Verses 16 and 17, 2 Thessalonians 2, the comfort of God is connected to God's love and the hope that we have. And the result 
is comfort and strength. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. You see, the comfort is rooted in the love of God. Without the love of God, this comfort would not exist. It would be pointless. We could not be sure that it is true comfort and not some sort of devious scheme of some sort of fickle God. But we know that God is love, and it is also comfort rooted in the hope that we have. Hope in what? Hope in ultimate redemption for the believer? Hope in heaven? Hope of knowing that a day is coming for which we have been saved when there will be no more pain, there will be no more sin, there will be no more death. We sang it earlier, but Hebrews 6.19 tells us that in times of trouble, hope is an anchor of the soul. It uses that very word. It is the anchor of the soul. In other words, grounded and founded upon the promises of God that just as Christ has gone before us, we will, as believers, enter into the presence of God. And then back in Second Thessalonians, which we read earlier, the result of God's comfort is strength and encouragement, specifically in our biblical works and words. In other words, It is not a comfort to say, now that tragedy has struck, my life is totally different. Your obedience, your commitment to the Lord, your works and word remain the same. You stick to God. You stick to what the Scriptures say. You stick to the plan. Look to God for comfort. Find comfort in the Lord. Relatives, yes, Church, absolutely. Other people, sure. Friends, whatever. All of that, yes. But ultimately, when we miss the foundational issue, the foundational person in looking to God in prayer, then everything else will just be momentary. It will be superficial. They will be just superficial words, pleasantries. And after a while, you're going to be sick of it. You're not going to want to hear it anymore. Look to God. You say, I I do. I don't feel it. I open the Word and I just can't read it. I listen to the Word. I read things. I I pray and I just, I I don't feel Him. I don't think He's there. I, I know He's there, but I don't find the comfort. You keep praying. You keep looking to His Word. It's tragedy. Of course you can't read anything. You can't go about your normal life for some time. But you have to understand and remember that God is good. God is there. And no matter how you may feel, know that you are to turn to God for comfort. Now, this comfort would be lacking if it wasn't for the character of God. This leads us to our second reality to consider when tragedy strikes, and that is remember that God is good. God is good. I say a phrase like that that we're all familiar with. We say it all the time. We think it all the time. God is good. 
When that statement is made, there are biblical truths and Scripture passages that come to mind, especially in the midst of difficulty. Passages like Romans 8.28, which says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And we think God is good. Yes, He works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Perhaps you think of James 1.17, which we looked at recently in our study. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, I say, yes, He works out all things for our good. He gives good things. We look at our own lives. We count our blessings. We see the good that God has done for us. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that God is good in His character, in His essence, Then, out of His goodness, He gives good things. He works out for our good. But that is not our primary focus. Our primary focus is not to look at this world and see what God has given us. It is first to look at the Lord on His throne and say, God is good. Because then, when you don't like His gifts when you don't like the biblical truths that are coming through to you from the Word and from His people, you'll remember, well, it doesn't matter because God is good. God is good. He is in His very essence good. In His very being, He is good. God does not fulfill goodness. He defines it. He does not meet the criteria of goodness. He is the criteria. God is good. And only when you understand this do you truly experience the power of passages like Romans 8.28 and James 1.17. We go beyond just getting the good gifts and we recognize the goodness of the giver. Your kids are going to experience this in a few days, in a few weeks here. Well, they'll experience, they may not recognize it depending on their age. They rip open those gifts and say, oh, I like this toy, I like these Legos. And maybe as they grow older, maybe later on in life, they'll look back and say, my parents took time to find the right gifts. They sacrificed for us to look for those gifts. They sacrificed financially. And they will recognize the love and goodness of the giver of the gifts. That's the point here. Don't just focus on what he does that is good, but understand that that is only possible because he is good. And so we start with the very character of God that He can do no evil, and that He does not seek the harm of His children. And it is then in understanding the goodness of God that you truly understand grace. The abundant and excessive giving of the good which we do not deserve. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, once wrote this, Thou shalt never find a bottle... Excuse me, thou shalt never find a bundle of affliction which has not bound up in the midst of it sufficient grace. God is good, and so He gives grace. Grace would be meaningless if it were not for the character of God. Man is sinful, God is good. 
The world is depraved. God is good. Society is evil, but God is good. And when the sting of tragedy seems unbearable, you remember that God is good. Your God is good. You may ask Him why. You may cry out like the psalmist, How long, O Lord? But do so because you know that God is good. In your goodness, Lord, why did this happen? In your goodness, Lord, how long before evil is dealt with? When you feel like you're drowning in sorrow, when you are crushed under the weight of grief, when your pastor writes you a letter that you can't even get past the first sentence without feeling like you're going to suffocate from shock, you remember that God is good. God is good. And if God is good, there's a contrast to good. There's an opposite of good. And that contrast, that opposite, that enemy, is embodied in sin. And that leads us to our next reality to consider when tragedy strikes. Understand the power of sin. Understand the power of sin. I want to talk about two aspects of the power of sin. The first is as it sounds. Sin is powerful. Sin is powerful in this world. Sin is powerful. Sin is the reason for tragedy. Before original sin and the rest of humanity subsequently followed suit of our ancestors Adam and Eve, there was no death. There was no disease. The world was good and perfect as God intended and as God declared. But then sin entered in and things went downhill fast. We understand that death exists because of sin and it entered into the world, sin did, and death because of the sin of one man. Romans 5.12 Through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's very key. You don't blame Adam there. We all sinned. We've all done it. And although God grows us through the reality of this depravity, you have to understand that sin is still powerful. Romans 6.23 You know it well. The wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15.56 The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, death is the result of the venomous sting of sin. And the law creates a standard that is impossible to perfect, so therein lies the power of sin. Man's inability in and of himself to please God, to fulfill his law perfectly. These are all general truths. You understand the theology, the concept of sin and death. But on a practical level, we must understand our own sin, our personal sin. Because when we talk about tragedy in terms of the existence of death, disease, and decay, that's all a result of sin in general, the existence of sin. But we must recognize our own personal sin 
that can exacerbate the pain we feel and can result in unnecessary tragedy. For example, sinful choices can lead to the spread of certain diseases and accidents, not to mention sins that can lead to anger or lack of hope in the Lord that result in physical harm or, again, even death. But even when we are bystanders of tragedy, in other words, mourning because tragedy has struck someone else, our sin can keep us from mourning or dealing with the situation properly, turning to gossip and anger rather than prayer and concern, justifying our own poor decisions because we compare our situation to others rather than to God's holiness. Whatever sin led to a certain tragedy, if it can be pinpointed, that does not excuse those sins for you. That doesn't make it okay for you to make those decisions. They are not our example, our standard. God is. You don't say, well, someone went out and committed a crime and they were part of our church, so I guess it's okay for me to do that. I'm not as bad. No. That's not what we do. We compare to the standard of God. God's holiness, God's perfection, God's will for our lives. But here's the point. We must never underestimate the power of sin. Especially in the midst of grief and tragedy, we must be wary of sin and never excuse it because of grief and tragedy. No, 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 it's okay because you're going through a tough time. I agree. What else could you have done? That's not okay. It's not okay. We must understand what sin is. We must understand the power of sin. We must understand how deceptive our hearts are, deceptively wicked. We must understand the power of sin. Now, I mentioned there are two aspects of the power of sin that I want to talk about. The first I've covered. The power of sin is great. The power of sin in the world is great. The power of sin in your life is great. In other words, sin is very powerful. The second aspect of the power of sin is this. That despite its power, it is not more powerful than God. Believer, you have to know this. You have to understand this. It is not more powerful than God. In fact, the second aspect of the power of sin is that in light of God's power and God's work in our lives, sin is relatively weak. Don't underestimate its power, but in light of God's power, understand that it is relatively weak. And it is so important to understand that in Christ, God's power over sin is in you. He strengthens us. He helps us. And though it may be hard, though it may take work, though it may be embarrassing, though it may seem daunting, there is no sin that is beyond the power of God working through you, and that is connected not just to the crucifixion, but also to the resurrection. It is finished, he said, and then three days later, 
prove that he was victorious. There is no sin that is beyond the reach of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. And when you say, I can't do it, that's when you go back to step one, find comfort in God. Don't get discouraged because you can't do it. You are theologically accurate. But don't forget the second part. God can do it through you. He works in you. You work with Him. There is no sin beyond the power of God. Yes, as we read, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the verse does not stop there. It continues and says, But the free gift... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. That's Romans 6.14. And so whether it's our response to tragedy, the tragedy itself, or even the cause of tragedy, we must understand that though we may feel like sin is too much, like sin is mastering our lives, the biblical truth is because of Christ, it is not. There is no sin in the believer's life that is so great that it cannot be overcome. Because just as you were saved, so you are sanctified. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. Your salvation, Ephesians 2.8, is a gift of God. But so is the whole process of salvation, which we are in the midst of. Justified in the past, yes. Glorified in the future, yes. Sanctified right now. Sanctification is a gift from God. He doesn't give us a gift of declaring us righteous and saving us and then leaving us on this earth to our own devices. He is here. He is with us. He is helping us. To be sure... There is work to be done. We are told in Philippians 2 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But there is a verse 13 that comes after Philippians 2.12. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We question that sometimes, right? Is it us or is it God's sovereignty? According to Philippians 2.12 and 13, The answer to that question, is it us or is it God? The answer is yes. Don't think you can do it on your own and don't let go and let God. Trust in Him. Let Him work in you and through you. This is why we make poor decisions because there is still a responsibility on our shoulders. We sin, we make poor decisions, we, act improper, we react improperly. But we know that God is working through us, for us, in us, with us. And if we submit to Him, our actions and our words will be in line with what He desires. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Remember, we're talking about the fact that there is no sin that is too powerful for God or the blood of Christ. This is true universally, but this is 
actively true, practically true in the life of only believers. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There's so much here that I want to unpack, but for the sake of what we're saying here, the first part of that verse simply tells us that whenever you feel like this sin is unique to me, No one will understand. The Bible doesn't address it. Your thinking is wrong. Your thinking is wrong. Maybe you don't know anyone personally that's going through the same thing. But there is nothing new under the sun and no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. It may not be the norm. It may not be something that most people struggle with. But it's common to man. And when that temptation comes, whether it's seemingly unique or it's something that everyone you know struggles with, God promises right here that He will provide a way of escape. There's a way out. And I want to point out the end of the verse so that you will be able to endure it. The way of escape is resisting temptation avoiding the sin so that you will continue living to glorify God. You will endure it. The escape is not to end anything. Not life, not Christianity, not going to church. It is escaping so you will carry on and endure. See, yes, sin and temptation are powerful, but they are no match for God. And even in the midst of the strongest and most overwhelming temptation and sin, God is with you and provides a way for you to escape and endure. And I want to add one more special thought. Not only did Christ coming to earth to live and die for our sins allow Him to conquer our sins, provide forgiveness, But that earthly life that he lived also gave him the experience such that he sympathizes with our human frailty. In other words, Jesus Christ gets it. Sinless, yes. Sympathize with our weaknesses, yep, he was there. 32, 33 years of it facing temptation from the devil himself, which though you may feel like it, probably has never occurred in your life and never will, directly from Satan. Again, I know we're flipping a lot, but would you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 is a very Jewish book. Christian, of course, but in the context of an audience that has a Jewish background, and clearly uh, the writer has a Jewish background. And so he uses a lot of illustrations and prophecies from the Old Testament, and here you see it's the high priest. 
And we know that in the Old Testament, there was a human high priest who that whole system was replaced by Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate, who the writer of Hebrews is referring to here. Hebrews four fifteen through 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, isn't it true that when we go through difficult times or even a difficult decision, we tend to go towards people who have been there because you know that they can sympathize in some way, right? I don't think, all due respect to our single people, I don't think any of you new moms or dads, when the baby was crying and you're lacking sleep, said, I need to call one of the single people at church, maybe one of the kids. No. You call someone who's been there, you regret it for the first few seconds when they kind of laugh at you and say, but then they're like, you're okay, you'll be okay, right? And we go through temptation, and sometimes we think, No one at my church gets it. There's no one I know who gets it. But right here, we are told that Jesus Christ does. So again, find comfort in God. Find sympathy in Jesus Christ. And whatever is going on in your life, or whatever may come into your life, know that there is power and deception. That's very important to understand. In sin. But as a follower of Christ... The sin has been taken care of in redemption and in forgiveness. There may be hard work ahead in this lifetime, in the next few hours, weeks, days. There may be guilt. There may be shame that is involved in your mind and your thinking. But there is nothing. There is nothing outside of the forgiveness of God. No matter how wicked, no matter how gross, no matter how blasphemous, no matter how long it's been, there is forgiveness. As Paul writes in Romans, the more we sin, the more grace we receive to cover that sin. Speaking of sin, I want to take you to our fourth point The fourth reality to consider when tragedy strikes, submit to the Scriptures. Submit to the Scriptures. I'm not going to spend too long here. It's pretty self-explanatory. But in the midst of tragedy, there's often a difficulty to think straight. After a while, we're tired of making decisions. We're tired of answering questions. From panic to confusion, exhaustion to resignation, our minds can be a swirl of emotions and thoughts. It is then, perhaps more than ever, that you need to go to God's Word. You need to stick to the plan, God's plan. And it is often in grief and panic that bad theology comes out. We can't think straight. For example... We can circumvent the gospel and convince ourselves to make ourselves feel better that the unsaved were actually saved, even though they were Buddhist or whatever. 
We can circumvent the gospel and think that the saved were demon-possessed. It wasn't them, it was a demon. Bad theology. We can believe that God is nowhere to be found or that God has made a mistake. Perhaps we even twist the theology of God's sovereignty and blame God for temptation and sin. And that's why we need to stick to the plan. Stick to God's Word. And it goes without saying, perhaps, that in order to stick to the plan, you need to know the plan. You need to read God's Word. You need to be in the Word. You need to be around people who will remind you of the Word, not other things, not cultural logic or status quo. The Word. And sometimes, especially in the midst of tragedy, you don't want to hear the Word of God, but you need it. We must be extra careful to avoid conventional wisdom. By that I mean the, the plan of man or society, even some of your family members who are loving and mean well. Intentionality and intentions do not make it right. Sometimes it's just what makes sense to you at the time as difficulties cloud your judgment. And again, that's why even when you can't find the strength to open up the Bible, be around people who will speak the truth to you. Avoid conventional wisdom. Avoid moment seems to make sense. Because you would think that tweezers would be the best way to get out a bee's stinger using a tool that can actually pinch and pull. But did you know that if you use tweezers, you can actually squeeze the stinger and push more poison into your body? And so often that happens in the midst of hardship. We look to the world, we look to cultural logic, we look to quick fixes to dull the pain and remove our guilt. And in the end, though it may seem right and may even alleviate some pain in the beginning, you divert from the Bible and you're just squeezing more poison into your soul. Stick to the plan. Believe what God says about Himself, about sin, and about you in his word. Look at Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one verses two through eight. Verses two through eight of Second Peter chapter one. Peter is in, in his introduction says, Grace multiplied to you in and this is so important in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The word knowledge in the Greek here is in the emphasized or strengthened form of the word knowledge. So it speaks of an intimate knowledge of God through our relationship with Him as believers, but also a knowledge of the objective truth of God as revealed in His Word. So what it is talking about is not just the relationship with God, but knowing God's Word because God's Word is where God is found. Let's move on. 2 Peter 1.3 Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. 
you, let's stop there. You have probably heard this verse quoted or referred to. All it is saying is that everything you need for living a life of godliness is found in the Word of God. Maybe not the specifics. Who do I call? What school do I go to? Do I take this job? Things like that. But the basic principles of life that you need to guide you towards the right decision in the specifics and to help us to live in a way that honors God joyfully with hope is found in his word. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It takes work. All of those from verse 5 to the end, these are spiritual disciplines. Again, they are principles that come from God and His character. Without God, these are humanly impossible, at least in a way that is biblical. But there is still work to be done to pursue those things. And he even says it at the end that these increase as you work on them. As you pursue holiness and godliness, these will increase and become easier. And the Lord will broaden your ministry and your influence for good, for his glory. Not an exhaustive list, but during times of tragedy... Some of the ways that we, it's very important to submit to the Scriptures, to stick to the plan, is 2 Corinthians 10.5, taking every thought captive. This is what we're talking about here, right? You've got to be careful of what you're thinking, what tempts you, what allures you, what, what conventional wisdom you want to buy into. Take every thought captive. Take that extra step Energy is low. Energy is, is a precious commodity in the midst of tragedy. But it's so important that we fight through it and take every thought captive. I think a big one in times of tragedy in terms of submitting to the Scripture is Matthew 10.28. Fearing God, not man. See, in the midst of tragedy, we feel this pressure. We feel this pressure to not share with other believers because we're embarrassed or we feel this pressure to share things that they don't need to know. We feel this pressure to cry or not cry. Who cares what people think? It doesn't matter. And friends, if you are not involved in the tragedy but you know someone in tragedy, don't pressure them to fear you. Don't expect things that are not from Scripture from them. Fear God, not man. Now as we talk about submission to Scripture, one of the most important and helpful areas of submission to the Word in tragedy is so important 
that it is our fifth and final reality to consider when tragedy strikes. Practice biblical fellowship. Practice biblical fellowship. We must first do the others. Find comfort in the Lord. Remember that God is good. Understand the power of sin. Submit to the Scriptures. And in that submission, practice biblical fellowship. Fellowship for the believer is all about Jesus Christ. That is the, what gives us that fellowship, that camaraderie, that unity. But practicing this fellowship is more than just being united in Christ. It's about being united in Christ and conducting your life in such a way that Christ is reflected. That Christ is dripping from your words and engulfing your behavior. And in the end, this means not just hanging out with other Christians or just enjoying the fact that there are others like you. It is living and speaking to other Christians in a way that makes you and them more like Christ. And this takes work. This takes a lot of work. In the midst of tragedy and those looking in. Hebrews 10, turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. If you've been with us and you're familiar with it, with James's, it's right there before it. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A few things really quickly. 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not stimulate how to feel good, not to stimulate how to get through it. Stimulate to love and good deeds. That is obedience, and stimulate is hard work. It means pricking with a needle. The word consider how to stimulate is not just, oh, here's someone, hey, let me say some good words. Consider means to think deeply. Think beforehand. Spend some time meditating on how am I going to help this individual, that individual, whoever I may see, and prick them towards love and good deeds in the Lord. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. Church is important. It is commanded but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is an urgency there. Why? Because Christ is coming again soon. What does that have to do with this? Because there are clear promises, not ifs, but promises from Scripture that as the day of Christ's return gets closer, the world will become more wicked, will become more evil. And naturally... As the world becomes more wicked, the more we need one another. In the midst of your tragedy, you must cling to other believers who will nurture, encourage, and direct you to the Lord even when that doesn't feel comfortable. And for those of us who are on the periphery of someone else's tragedy, we must apply the truths of Hebrews 10 as well. Stimulating to love and good deeds. Not gossip, not shame, not judgment, Grace, fellowship, 
not tiptoeing, not walking on eggshells, but providing, filling, and nourishing meat, even if it seems cumbersome, bothersome, or even unwelcome and rejected. Have you ever thought about that saying, walking on eggshells? Makes a lot of sense. It's a great picture. If you don't want to crack any eggshells, you tiptoe. You don't want to offend. You don't want to say anything that that will hurt someone. But if I'm standing on eggshells, I will have to break them to carry the weight of my brother or sister. Be bold. Be clear. A lot of special memories and encouraging things will be said about Johnny at his funeral tomorrow. As funerals go. Christian, let us not wait until a funeral to say it to those who are still with us. I know you are well-meaning. I get it. It is out of love. But often as Christians, we want to give people space. And the reality is there were times in my own life and my wife's life of tragedy, as well as other Christians that I have spoken to, that a community of unbelievers were the most encouraging because they didn't want to give us space. I get that you want to give space out of love, but I am telling you that you cannot stimulate others if you are not there. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to stand by and watch. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in God's Word are we told to give people space. Nowhere. We must enter into people's lives who are dealing with tragedy forcefully, if necessary, and act. The very nature of the Christian faith is disruptive. It penetrates society as salt and light. It infiltrates the soul with the saving message of Jesus Christ. And it barges into the lives and homes of Christian brothers and sisters to encourage, admonish, and fellowship. And somehow we have made being polite synonymous with service and it must. The days of using giving space as an excuse for inactivity must be crucified. Practice biblical fellowship. Don't wait for them to call. Show up. You don't have to force them to talk. You don't even always need to talk. But you need to be present. When you fellowship biblically, tragedy biblically, but you may very well prevent another one. In the midst of tragedy, it is hard to reach out. There are tragedies that bring shame and embarrassment. It is not a time to hide. It is a time to fellowship. And biblical fellowship is imperative at all times, right now, but also before tragedy strikes and after tragedy is gone. 
can I just be very honest and real with you right now? If you were to ask me right now, sure it changes over time, but if you were to ask me what right, right now is the greatest discouragement for me of being a pastor, it would be this. The people who come to our church that I consider family, but they don't consider themselves family. Whether it's because they're new or they're not, they haven't gone through the official membership process or they're just shy or they don't have a ministry. They don't really see them as part of the church. This is my church, but I'm not really part of the church. I'm new here. That's not how the local church works. Whether you're just visiting for a day or staying for a decade, you are family because you are a Christian and you are sitting here this morning. There's not a trial period for the church. That's not how church works. I get that you check out churches to figure out where you want to stay. But while you're checking us out, you are family. Fellowship, biblically. I went to Johnny's small group this past week. And we all went around one by one sharing memories about him. Pretty much everyone said something. And this is not a knock on anyone who shared. But the best anyone could say to a man who's been at our church for two-thirds of the church's life is that he was a great musician. It's excruciating to hear. Again, not the fault of those who are sharing. Makes me sick to my stomach right now just thinking about it. You need to open up. You need to let, we need to know who you are, what you're struggling with, what your marriage is like. That's biblical fellowship. That's the family of God. We don't need your advice. We don't need you coming to a small group and saying, well, Christians should do this or that. We need to know what you're doing and what you're not doing. And what you're struggling with. We don't need you to wax eloquent about what Christians should do. We need you to wax thoroughly about what you as a Christian need help with. Not me. Not Chris. Us. Us. Family. Together. Again here for a day or here for a decade. You need us as much as we need you. That's what family is. Except in this body, we understand the sovereignty of God, we understand the doctrine of election, and we understand that God has brought you here, even if you were just walking your dog this morning and saw a sign for church and decided to come in. That was God's sovereignty, and we need you just as much as you need us. 
We cannot be embarrassed about sharing what we need. We cannot be embarrassed about sharing our sins. We need to open up. Not just because of this recent tragedy, but because we are people of God. And our ultimate goal is not just to have a happy life. Our ultimate goal is to honor and glorify God as a collective group of sinners running this race together and we need to help each other. Not for the kids' sake, not for the marriage's sake, but for God's glory. And we can't do that if we don't know you. You can't do that if you don't know me. It doesn't mean we line up and share all of our dirty laundry, but there's someone, someone you can talk to. Small groups, men's group, women's group. This isn't us just trying to play church. Oh, you've got to have these activities. It's for this. It's for biblical fellowship. It doesn't matter how long you are here doesn't matter if you've been here for weeks or months and no one has ever spoken to you. You are family. We need to serve us. And we need to serve you. And it is very easy to hide. No one knows your name. Come and go. Someone says something uncomfortable. You leave. That's not Christianity. And we also, as we reciprocate that, we need to not be a people who make it difficult to share because we bash and we Bible thump and we accuse and we criticize and we gossip. We need to be family. Practice biblical fellowship. Five realities to consider when tragedy strikes. Find comfort in the Lord. Remember that God is good. Understand the power of sin. Submit to the Scriptures. And practice biblical fellowship. These steps will not necessarily remove the sting of tragedy, but they will keep you.